doubts on the gospel serve to clarify the gospel. Another way to say this is that those who preached false gospels ultimately served to strengthen the church's embrace of the true gospel. And we spent some time thinking about this, this statement, theological clarity is forged out of theological controversy. We spent a lot of time last, last time together last week thinking about how the church was not inventing doctrine. The church was not um, making things up out of thin air. But as, as false teachers arose, that demanded that the church respond with clearly and carefully articulating what the Bible taught on a matter. And so last week we were introduced to the Judaizers. And they were the people who taught the gospel plus works equals salvation. Then we spent quite a bit of time on that weird group called Gnostics or Gnosticism. And they're the ones that have the gospel plus secret knowledge and secret feelings. Well, we are getting into, and so we've been moving through church history. So as we get to page 12 tonight, we are going to be exploring, finally, the Apostles' Creed. So we're moving chronologically through history, and now we find ourselves somewhere around the year 140. So Judaizers are still working hard. There's still the notion in the human heart that the gospel plus works equals salvation rather than the free grace of Jesus Christ. And this idea of Gnosticism that we learned about was like a leech. It would a leech that would latch on to different religions. And since Christianity was, was exploding in many ways throughout the empire, Gnostic teachers adopted Christian vocabulary, Christian ideas, and changed Jesus, changed the God of the Old Testament, and more. And so, so we saw that there was these false teachings going about. Now, most churches, and most churches at this point, were house churches, some were able to meet in synagogues. Some were able to meet their own building, rent their own buildings. But a lot of churches were in house churches. And many, but not all, had their own copies of the scriptures. But having your own copy of the Bible at home uh, was not widespread. And so we know that a lot, of, a lot of ways that teaching took place in the early church was through the preaching of the word, the reading of the word when the church was assembled, and talking about it, and, and helping each other memorize it. Well, of ancient origin is the Apostles' Creed. And it comes to us sometime around the year 140. The Apostles' Creed is of unknown ancient origin. So there's historical documents, even earlier than this, that show different things that people would recite at baptisms publicly, uh, different little ways of understanding the faith. But the Apostles' Creed stands out as the earliest major statement of the gospel after the Bible was finished being written, after John died. So um, it's, it's named after a tradition that emerged in the 500s. So we don't know who wrote it. But what we do know is that what's in it is apostolic teaching. And so this tradition arose in the 500s that each of the 12 apostles wrote one of the 
12 lines that are in this, but it's, that's legend. And so, but it's the Apostles' Creed. The reason it's called a creed is because it begins, the stanzas, there's three stanzas, begin in Latin with the word credo. And that's the name of our class, right? Credo, which is Latin for I believe. So it's a statement of confession, a statement of declaration. This Apostles' Creed, church historian Philip Schaff says it this way, as the Lord's Prayer is the prayer of prayers, and the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is the law of laws. So the Apostles' Creed is the creed of creeds. Albert Moeller has a book on the Apostles' Creed. And it's a really neat statement he makes. The Apostles' Creed collapses time and space, uniting all true believers in the one holy apostolic faith. This creed is a summary of what the Bible teaches, a narrative of God's redemptive love, and a concise statement of basic Christianity. And then note this part that I have underlined in there. All Christians believe more than is contained in the Apostles' Creed, but none can believe less. It's a really, really well-spoken statement. And we'll pick up that idea a little bit later. A lot of times, we can talk about the gospel and what we must positively believe in order to be saved. Moeller's statement is that we can believe more than this. Our understanding of baptism can be different. Our understanding of church leadership structures can be different. Things along those lines. But the Apostles' Creed is the... Is the um, it's the most simplistic demonstration of the gospel that must be confessed by believers. He goes on to say this idea of creeds. He just gives a list of, of seven reasons why creeds are important. They define the truth. A creeds correct error. Creeds provide rules and standards for God's people. Creeds teach the church how to worship and confess the faith. They connect us to the faith of our fathers. They summarize the faith, and they define true Christian unity. I have a really poorly written sentence. Sorry that it sounds so bad. What I'm trying to say here is we don't know why the creed was written, meaning was it written to refute Judaizers? Was it written to refute Gnosticism? Not explicitly, but as we look at it in a moment, we're going to see that what's contained in the creed um, corrects those errors and more. So let's jump right into it. Here's the Apostles' Creed. I'm just curious, did any of you grow up in a church that recited the Apostles' Creed? Yeah, a, a good portion of you. I'm, I'm not going to ask you to do it, but how many of you still haven't memorized? Two, a couple of you. That's great. How many of you were saved or raised in churches that did no creeds? Okay, another, another part of us. Okay. Well, here's the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, 
was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Can't fit it all on here, but what I want to show you on, on page 13 is on the left column, the different categories or topics that are being discussed, and the right column is the Apostles' Creed. And by the way, when we get to the Nicene Creed, we'll have that next to this also to see how the creeds develop over time. But if you look at categories, we have God the Father, God the Son, Jesus' incarnation and virgin birth, Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' descent, we'll come back to that, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' ascension, Jesus' session, session meaning that he is seated in heaven right now. We have God the Holy Spirit, we have church, and we have resurrection. Those amazing, comprehensive description of who God is. And if you look at the top of page 13, I bolded these three credo, credo, credo. I believe, I believe, I believe. And you notice that the way that it is designed is that those words, I believe, are spoken when the next member of the Trinity is brought up in the, in, the, in the creed. But remember, the word Trinity was not invented yet. So what we're looking at is one of the difficulties is us having to think through that. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity was invented by God in the Bible, but the word Trinity... If, if that, just to be clear, if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about there. But we're going to come back and actually explore the theology of this more when we get to the Nicene Creed. But what, if we go over to page 14, I do want to talk about two statements that tend to be stumbling blocks or confusing. So if you look on page 13 or, 13 or 14, we'll be flipping back and forth. If you look at number, oh, I don't have it in our notes. All right. Yes, I do. This idea of Jesus descended into hell. What, what does that mean? It doesn't mean what our knee-jerk reaction thinks it means. What does that mean? Okay. So when I hear this creed saying Jesus descended into hell... I get the picture of Jesus going to the place of flames and punishment and continuing to maybe suffer. That's not at all what is being taught here. That is not at all what the uh, framers or early framers who wrote this, nor the early Christians who received this, had that idea. That is a late Roman Catholic idea that got foisted upon this statement. And sometimes it's called the harrowing of hell, that Jesus did some more suffering in hell or something along those lines. That is not true. So what does this mean, line number six? It's better understood for you to interpret that as that Jesus descended into the grave. He descended into the grave. So 
In short, when you read your Old Testament, the Old Testament always depicts the dead going down to a place called Sheol. So David, good King David, knew that when his son died, uh, when he sinned with Bathsheba, David knew that the baby went down to Sheol and that David would go down to Sheol also to be with the baby. He also wrote Psalm 16, if I remember the text correctly, where he says, you will not leave my soul in Sheol. So David anticipated resurrection and leaving this place of the dead. So in the Old Testament, Sheol was a place where all dead went. And my understanding is that the place of the dead had a place of punishment and a place of, uh, of comfort and rest, what Jesus refers to as Abraham's side, Abraham's bosom. So when it says that he descended into hell, the question is, where did Jesus go when he died on the cross? Jesus said that just as Jonah would be in the belly, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man would be in the belly or the in the earth for three days. So Jesus' spirit went down to the grave for those three days when he was resurrected. So when he descended into hell, he went to the grave. He did not go to the place of punishment. He did not go down there and preach the gospel and then unsaved Old Testament people got saved. That didn't happen. He went to the place of comfort where the Old Testament believers were. That's a short explanation. Let me keep going and then I can, I'll take some questions before we move on. And then the other stumbling block. What do you mean I believe in the Holy Catholic Church? No, I don't. Actually, yes, we do. The lowercase c, Catholic Church. That word Catholic just means universal. So we're not talking about the Roman Catholic Church with the capital C, the RCC. We are talking about the universal church. So this was a statement. This was actually a beautiful statement by the first Christians who knew that there was one church, the universal church, the global church, and that we are all part of it even though there was Christians in Ephesus and Corinth and Philippi and, and different places. A couple more things. As a succinct statement of the gospel, the Apostles' Creed refutes the heart of Gnostic teaching. So if you remember, Gnostics said, well, the God of the Old Testament was an evil God because he created things. And Jesus provides salvation by liberating us from the flesh, not because we're sinners. They had a false gospel. But when you read the Apostles' Creed, God the Father is presented as a good, benevolent creator. So that's what I mean by it implicitly fights against the heresy of Gnosticism. It also is clear, Jesus is God the Son incarnate, meaning he became flesh, who suffered died and was buried, not a phantom, right? So Gnostic teaching said there is no way God would become flesh because anything physical is evil. So there's no way Jesus could have suffered. He was merely a ghost or a phantom or it seemed like it. Well, the Apostles' Creed refutes that aspect of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism taught that your salvation was to be liberated from the flesh and to go and be with whatever 
weird, distant God exists. But the creed says that the Christian's destiny is not liberation from the body, but a glorified, resurrected, eternal body. Right? And what's the, what's the last line? The last line says, second to the last line, uh, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. So the creed on those three points alone refutes all the Gnostic heresy that was infiltrating different churches and things along those lines. And I want to suggest that the Apostles' Creed also implies, it implicitly refutes the Judaizers who taught that you're only saved if you believe and do works. Why would I say that? While the Apostles' Creed does not explicitly speak to justification by grace through faith, it is nonetheless the premise of the entire creed. Uh, this is seen in the three repetitions of I believe, and there's no hint that any work, circumcision or baptism, is required for salvation, only that one confesses and believes. Right? So if what I'm trying to argue is if circumcision or baptism or something else was necessary to be saved, then the creed is not a statement of the gospel. It does not convey what someone needs to be, to believe to be saved, because it just simply says, I believe, I believe, I believe. That's why it implies justification by faith. And while the word is not invented yet, the Apostles' Creed is implicitly Trinitarian. Each member of the Trinity is prefaced with, I believe in, indicating faithful worship of each person of the one Godhead. That's what makes this such a beautiful, succinct statement to uh, memorize, to memorize with someone else, to teach your kids, to teach your grandkids. It's a, it's a beautiful statement. So some truth for today. The Apostles' Creed is an elegant statement of the gospel, useful for worship and memorization as a guard and guide against error. And then just a question for you to think about is what might it look like for you to incorporate the Apostles' Creed, into your life? In what ways might it benefit you to have that memorized? How might it help your evangelism? And um, this also, by the way, when you have the, the church bulletin, we have that section in the middle that on the left page is just a recycling of the ancient creeds that we're actually going through in this class. Just for your edification, just for your inspection to help to help you understand Jesus better. So let's let's stop there. Any any questions about the Apostles' Creed uh, or anything that we've covered so far or anything from last week? Yes, Ron. Did the Judaizers uh, continue to sacrifice after AD seventy? The Samaritans did, but they were not technically, I, I don't know. I don't know. I have to, I'd have to look at the Talmud and the Mishnah. I don't know. But I would bet some did. Yes, Craig. Going back to the statement that Al Mohler made, pick on what you said. Uh, it's not on. Yeah, it's not on. Yeah, it's not on. 
Green light is on. Touch the chin. Is it is it working yet? He's on. You just need to turn him up. You're not getting a signal. Craig, use this one. You, brother, you get two mics. Hey, Craig. Yeah, I'll do a, I'll do a swap. I don't have two Matt. <laughs> uh, you said that this is what a believer must believe. So could you clarify what you mean by must? Because I'm thinking of the thief on the cross. And he was admitted into heaven based on what Jesus said to him. I wouldn't use him as an example because as the rest of the New Testament develops, you have confessions like Matthew 28, go baptize, Trinitarian formula, Romans 10, 9 and 10, confess that Jesus is Lord, which implies an understanding of the Trinity. So the thief on the cross, um, did he understand the Trinity? I don't think so. Is there something going on there that is uh, the atonement is not yet complete, it's not yet finished, Jesus is not dead, he's not yet risen, perhaps. So I, I wouldn't camp there, I'd, I'd camp on post-resurrection teachings from the New Testament. So what do you mean by the word must? Could you just clarify it for us? Have to. Okay. <laughs> but I can't use the thief on the cross. No, I wouldn't. Because, yeah, because he... Um, he wouldn't know that Jesus rose on the third day, right? Correct. Until yeah. after he went to heaven. Correct. When yeah. he, so when he died and saw Jesus in Abraham's bosom and then they rose together, that, that would be, he, he had a better understanding of the gospel. But when you think about uh, Romans 10, 9, and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if, if, um, that's the irreducible complexity of the gospel right there, where Paul lays out that's, that's which the minimum of what you have to believe. But when you confess that Jesus is Lord, that necessarily implies Matthew 28, getting baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what I'm arguing is that someone would need to confess the Trinity in order to be saved. They don't have to have a PhD in the Trinity, but if someone confesses Christ, they hear the Trinity and they say, I don't believe that then I would say that they're not saved. So, so all they have to do is agree. So if it was, you know, he got saved, and do you believe that uh, in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Yes, I do. Yes. Then that fulfills that. Yes. Yeah. That if someone, little if, bit of knowledge that we have to know. Yeah, I mean, if okay, so uh, if, this, if someone says, I don't think that Jesus descended into the grave, does that mean that they're not saved? I, I don't think so. But um, the Trinity is, is a must. So is Moeller overstating a little bit? Did I overstate? On that note about descending into the grave, I would just have a long conversation with someone about that. Yeah, so I'm just wondering where that fuzzy line is between God's sovereignty and what we have to know. Yes. So at minimum, Trinity. Okay. And then the incarnation, which would be Jesus is truly God and truly man. That's, and then that his 
atonement on the cross is working so that we can't work. So justification by faith would be the centerpiece of the gospel. We'll probably sneak a few other things in there, but good, good question. Any, any other excellent questions like that regarding the Apostles' Creed, anything we've talked about so far? The, uh, the Apostles' Creed, uh, has it been modified or does it change like uh, the uh, uh, faith uh, practices that we have, like the Baptist Confession of Faith and how that's changed? It, it did go under some modification, I think in the five or six hundreds. I can't remember what part was added. It might actually be the descended into the grave component. Possibly. You looked it up? Okay, good job. Got a sleuth over there. See, then that, that answers our question. Craig. Both Craigs. That was easy. Uh, sorry, Yes. We do need to. No, no, no. I think the Craigs are done. Thank you, brothers. So, Dave, can it, would we be safe in interpreting that into the grave, like, uh, wholesale across the whole New Testament, like Ephesians 4? Oh. Uh, or are we going outside and being, <clears throat> uh, yeah, can we, can we apply that same understanding to any time it comes up in the New Testament? Um, are, you, uh, are you asking where do believers go when they die? No. Uh, so Ephesians 4, um, 9, says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended in the lower regions, the earth? Could we just understand that to mean was buried? Like, is it okay to understand that de descended into the lower regions of the earth as being buried anytime it comes up in the New Testament? That makes sense? I, I think so. If you look at the ESV there, I think you have a footnote. And well, it's in parentheses, those two verses. Okay. Is that what you mean? Well, there's a, there might be a footnote at the bottom of the page where it's going to say, or he descended into the lower regions. Lower parts of the earth. Yeah, there is a footnote there. Yeah, so there's a, the translators of the ESV are making it sound like, what does it mean that he ascended, but that he also descended to the lower regions, comma, the earth. So the ESV, as it's translated there, makes it read like, the incarnation was his descent, but the footnote allows for, no, he descended into the lower regions of the earth, which would be the grave. Mm -hmm. And that's, there's a little bit of a dispute there. My understanding is that he went into the grave. That's what's, what Paul's talking about in that quote. Good question. Very good question. Let's, uh, let's move forward. Uh, we take more questions on this as, as we go on, but I want to talk about, let's get into the next section, Marcion. Montanus and the Muratorian Canon. Doesn't that sound exciting? <laughs> it's super exciting. So if you look at the dates, we got this guy Marcion. He's, he's doing his stuff really in the 140s. He gets excommunicated from church in 144. You got this other guy, Montanus, who's a little bit later. 
that's kind of his era of ministry, those, those, those years. And then this thing called the Muratorian Canon, which is 190. So we're advancing historically to the next. So we've seen the Judaizers, we've seen the Gnostics. Now we have the beautiful Apostles' Creed. Let's get into the next two sets of heretics, Marcion. His teaching is the gospel minus anything Jewish equals salvation. The gospel minus anything Jewish equals salvation, which is not salvation. So he arrives in Rome around 140. Church in Rome welcomes him. He's got pockets full of cash, <laughs> buys him some buildings. And then, was little known about this guy, but we find out in 144, the church in Rome excommunicates him. He's kicked out of the church. He's removed from the Lord's Supper. And why? What we find out is that Marcion begins to, so he claims he's a believer. He's in the church. He's given him cash. He's probably a nice guy because he actually becomes a church, a heretic church planter. And his churches actually survive for a few hundred years. So, so this guy is sharp and he's articulate and he's convincing. So Marcion in, integrated elements of Gnostic teaching into his own teaching and then he wielded major influence for a few centuries. Eventually, he established Marcionite churches of his own all around the Mediterranean. So according to Marcion, the God of the Old Testament was a wrathful, vengeful deity who wanted to keep humankind subjected to himself while Christ was sent by the real supreme God to reintroduce the old religion of love and peace. So couldn't you see him standing in a pulpit and saying, have you read the book of Joshua? Look at all that killing that old evil God made the Israelites do. We need a kind Jesus or a, a kind God of love and peace. Oh, his name is Jesus. And he's come and he wants us to be a religion of love and peace. But in this case, Jesus is not part of the Trinity because there is no such thing as a Trinity. There's many gods, and Jesus may or may not have been a lesser god. So Marcion's using his Bible, he's using Christian vocabulary, and he is completely twisting everything, redefining the words, and all of that. He was considered the arch-heretic. So, so during this era, we'll see most of the Christian writing, like you have the Apostles' Creed, there were some letters getting written from one bishop of a church to other churches and things along those lines, but a lot of the main writings for the first 250 years of the church is mainly defending the faith against the Roman Empire and against heretics within the church. So he was branded an arch-heretic by other, other writers. So in addition to his own writings, he wrote stuff, he had his own Jefferson Bible. <laughs> he edited his own version of the Bible, and here's, here's what he did. He made himself a pocket New Testament. <laughs> I should put that in there. Because there was no Psalm and Proverbs in this. So he cut out the entire Old Testament... The whole OT, 
trash. All references to Jesus' Jewishness removed. And he cut any text that he thought was corrupted by, by Judaizing elements. Now, don't think Judaizers who said gospel plus works of salvation, just anything Jewish. If he thought mm, that smells Jewish, he would cut it out of the Bible. And he also denied Christ's humanity. So in short, the Marci Marcion's Bible consisted of a mutilated version of the Gospel of Luke and 10 of Paul's edited letters. That was it. So the main guy, he had a lot of people writing against Marcion because if his churches, if you think about it, to put it in our day and age, there's still people who are writing apologetic works against Latter-day Saints, Mormons, against Roman Catholics, against uh, Jehovah's Witness, against all different religions. Well, it was the same thing happening then. And if Marcionite churches, if there was one down the street, then that pastor in that congregation would know that that was a false church, even though they claimed to be Marcionite Christians. And so they would write stuff against that. And so, so some of the writing, the North African Tertullian famously wrote a book called Against Marcion to refute his false teaching uh, around that time that was published. So, so that's Marcion. Real quick. Any, any questions on Marcion? The gospel minus anything Jewish equals salvation. Plus Jesus wasn't human. And plus there's lots of other gods. So he had a false gospel. Yeah, Porter. Would you, would you say that he's an overcorrection against the Judaizers? That he, while the Judaizers swung one way, he swung kind of the exact opposite way? I think it's possible. When with some of these guys that we're going to see, not the Gnostics, but even, so Marcion had Gnostic tendencies. They were kind of woven into him. But like this next guy that we're going to see, Montanus, seems to have genuinely wanted a pure church. And he was just entirely wrong. And so some of the heretics seem to have, um, if we assume the best, goodwill. But when confronted with the truth, they refused to repent of the truth, which showed that they were unregenerate to begin with. Or, and, and so uh, motives, some were sinister, but they were all used by Satan. Good question. Anything else about Marcion? Okay, so here's the next one. Montanus. So he is the opposite of Marcion. So if Marcion was the gospel minus anything Jewish, Montanus was the gospel plus additional superior revelation. So now remember, his, his ministry is mainly right around 156, 172. So you go with a late date of the Apostle John's death. I mean, we're looking at, you know, get, getting closer to 100 years since the New Testament was closed, more or less. He had two prophetesses, Prisca and Maximilia. They went around prophesying in the Spirit, and foretelling the imminent return of Christ. They would enter trances and ecstatic states, so probably making weird gibberish sounds and shaking, rolling their eyes back, 
doing weird stuff, twitching. They would enter trances and ecstatic states, claiming that the paraclete was speaking through them. That was their favorite word. Now, they spoke Greek. Remember, paraclete was Jesus' name for the Holy Spirit, one of them. But here's the kicker. Montana's claimed opposition, claimed any opposition to them, he and the two ladies, or to their prophecies was blasphemy of the spirit, blasphemy against the spirit. And churches split over it. I don't know how that's, it just says churches split. So at least two churches split because of this. So in the name of the Spirit doing a new thing, Christ and the gospel were no longer central to the message. It's a key thing to take away. It's, it's so subtle. So you, you, so you can't miss the subtlety. In the name of the Spirit doing something new, Jesus and his word and his gospel were not front and center, the main thing. They were sidelined. Jesus and the gospel were put in the background. And the new teachings of Montanus and the two ladies, that's really what you should focus on. That's really what you should listen to. That's really how you should organize your life right now is what they would have said something along those lines. Biblical revelation was backgrounded. Their revelation was foregrounded. What the effect was to undermine Scripture and its teachings as they were old, since the Spirit was doing something new. This removed people from the source and strength of their faith and sanctification, meaning the Bible, to unverifiable new revelation from the Spirit. It was not that the church had ceased, this is a, I like this quote, it was not that the church had ceased to believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. The difference was that in the first days, the Holy Spirit enabled men to write the sacred books of the Christian faith. And in the latter days, meaning that time period, the Holy Spirit enabled men to understand, to interpret, and to apply what had been written. Montanus and his prophetesses undermined the Holy Spirit's work in inspiration and illumination of Scripture. They functionally made the Holy Spirit a contradiction to himself with their false claims that the Holy Spirit was no longer using the Bible, but their new revelation. You see how subtle that is? So how do you compare these two opposite heretical movements, Marcion and Montanus? So Marcion's planting churches, Montanus's splitting churches, and it was all about the Bible, right? Marcion, there's too much Bible in the Bible. And then Montanus, there's not enough Bible in the Bible. I need to add my words to the Bible, basically. So if Marcion nudged the churches into thinking about codifying the Bible, meaning what are the books that we agree on, Montanus forced the church into thinking about closing the Bible. Marcion wanted less Bible in the Bible. Montanus wanted more Bible in the Bible, sidelining Scripture for fresh revelation and a new move of the Spirit. So the question then is, if we were back then, and we have a 
Marcionite church down the street, and then I'm getting emails from Montanus's PR campaign for him and his prophetess to come hold a special meeting among us, which is what happens in my emails. What, 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 should, we, what should we think? How should the church think about the canon of Scripture and Revelation? One guy says, too much Bible. The other ones say, the Bible's not as important as you think it is. If the Judaizers and Gnostics were early challenges to salvation and God himself, Marcion and Montanus were challenges to God's revelation of himself in the Bible. So it's a, this is a new flavor of theological controversy that's going to lead to theological clarity. The other ones, is Jesus God or not? Is salvation by grace alone through faith alone or not? Now we're dealing with, is the Bible the Bible or not? And before we move on to the Muratorian canon, any questions about Montanus and his crew? Yes, Sam. Project. There we go. Yep. Is that working now? Great. Uh, it seems to be a lot of um, similarities between like Islam and um, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, where they they either say like, "Hey, we have a new revelation," right? It's like in the case of Mormonism, the um, the revelation of Joseph Smith or Mohammed and his revelation 600 years later, you know, um, all of them will claim parts of scripture, add to or subtract from. So just wanted to comment on that. That's a great observation. That's, that is the essence of it really, is all of the different additional religious movements that we've seen that claim monotheism or claim a, the so-called Abrahamic faiths um, is there's additional writings. I know you've got the Bible, but there's new prophets, and there are new things they say supersede what the book already says. So we'll look at that a little bit more. But so the question is, what's the, what's the church to do? What, what would we do if we were in their shoes? Enter the Muratorian canon. Somewhere around 190 A.D., what is this thing? The Muratorian fragment or canon. Okay, so by the way, the word, the word canon means standard. It means uh, measuring stick by which everything else is judged. That's what it means. So Muratorian canon or fragment. Fragment means it's a piece of something. So what's going on here? It's the earliest known list of the books of the Bible in circulation in the early church. But before we look at the list, does the Bible itself self-attest which books should be in the Bible? Okay, so let's think about this for a minute. Uh, I want to know if the Bible tells us what books should be in the Bible before we go to some list in the year 190. Because if we go to the Bible, if we go to the scriptures, we're going to see what the Christians have always known all along. So this fragment list, this muratorian list of the books in the Bible, 
is not creating the Bible. It's not inventing the Bible. It's showing what Christians already believed, footnote, that was in the Bible. And, and we'll see this in a minute. So, for example, if you turn, well, we won't, for the sake of time, we're not going to turn there, but you can. Jesus affirmed the 66 books of our Old Testament. He does so in a lot of places. But, for example, in Luke, he does so in those cited verses there, Luke 24, two different places at two different times. Jesus claimed the Old Testament was all about him. Which, by the way, then, if Marcion rises up and says the Old Testament is bad, we need to cut it out, and Jesus says, it's all about me, it's actually quite good, let's listen to Jesus. So that, that's a pretty easy softball. I, I'm, I'm assuming Jesus really is who he said he was, he is. He is God in the flesh. So when he says, yeah, those 66 books are all about me, I'm just going to say, sold, I believe it. But it, what about the New Testament? Jesus promised his spirit would both remind and teach the disciples. So John 16, he says in verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you. This is the upper room. It's the uh, apostles, the disciples. He will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he, the spirit hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. I think that this implies very strongly that we should expect the apostles to write more books for the Bible. Because he says in verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear it now. So how is Jesus going to tell us those more things? He's going to tell it to the apostles they're going to write it down, and the Spirit is going to guide them into all truth. That's why we have a New Testament. John 15, verse 26, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will bear witness about him. What's, what's the chief ministry of the Holy Spirit? Making Jesus known. He does that in 17.8 by convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So what I want you to see here is the Spirit's job is also focused on bearing witness to Christ. If Christ is not exalted, in keeping with previous biblical revelation, it's not the work of the Spirit. Marcion did not have the Spirit. Montanus did not have the Spirit. He claimed to have the Spirit, but the Spirit that was in Montanus contradicted the Holy Spirit who wrote the Bible. That's part of what the Bible tells us about testing the spirits in 1 John. So, Passages like these destroy any heretical or misguided notion that the Spirit does anything other than bear witness. Either what I was about to say was really important, or I shouldn't say it. You guys can be the judge. Uh, passages like these destroy any heretical or misguided notion that the Spirit does anything other than bear witness to Christ. So the spiritual gifts in the church, like Ephesians 4, like Scott mentioned, apostles, prophets, pastor, teachers, uh, in Romans 12, the different gift lists, I think it's Romans 12, uh, we see that the gifts given to the church are to build the church to make much of Christ. So when Christians gather together and do things in the Spirit, 
that don't make the gospel of Jesus Christ famous, which builds the church up, I would argue there's a really strong possibility that's not the spirit of Christ in action. We also discover the apostle Peter affirmed Paul's writings as scriptures, 2 Peter 3. Um, well, count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. This is funny. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. <laughs> this is the Apostle Peter reading the book of Romans. And saying, that's hard to understand. There are some things in them, Paul's writings, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. And here it is. As they do the other scriptures. Peter signals that what Paul writes is alongside the other scriptures, which would have been the Old Testament. We can read the Apostle Paul, and he quotes either Matthew 10 or Luke 10, 7, both as scripture. I think he does that in uh, 1 Timothy 5, 18. But so the question is, when did the canon close demonstrating the biblical books the early church received as inspired and canonical? So that's enter the Muratorian fragment. So the, one of the arguments, if you have read the Da Vinci Code, watched the Da Vinci Code, or were born after the Da Vinci Code... There's always these arguments that sneaky Christians snuck in and suppressed the true truth about Jesus and then fabricated their own books of the Bible and through oppression and power gave us the New Testament, which is actually not the New Testament. There's always that conspiracy floating around down through the ages. It's, it's rooted in Gnosticism and it just recycles itself. So every Easter, every Christmas, Time or Newsweek or some publication is going to publish something about how either something new, some new scripture is discovered that should be added to the Bible or why the Bible is tinkered, tinkered with. That, that's why this is so important, because if the Bible has been changed by sneaky Christians, then we can't have faith in any of it. But the Bible has not been changed by sneaky Christians. The Bible has been preserved by faithful Christians. So we can actually die for this book like our forebearers have. But the Muratorian Canon of 190 is a help. What is this thing? The Muratorian Canon, or fragment, is an ancient document containing a partial list of New Testament books. It was discovered in the mid-1700s and published in 1740 by Lodovico Antonio Muratori. Hence the name Muratorian Fragment. He named it after himself. I think that's kind of funny. The Muratorian contains a number of dating clues, such as contemporary comments. So when you, when you read the Muratorian Fragment, so it's called a fragment because the top has been torn off, and then it looks like there was more uh, pages to follow that we don't have. So it's just a... You know, take a piece of paper, tear it off, and then write page one at the bottom. I don't think it says page one on the bottom. They didn't do that. But it just gives you a notion that's what it means by it's a fragment. 
there's comments in it that let you know uh, that there's verbal cues that it was dated. So it talks about the recent writing of this book that was loved by early Christians called The Shepherd of Hermas during the time of Pius I, Bishop of Rome. That was in 140. There's references to Marcion in this thing. There's references to the Montanists called Cataphrygians. And Rome is traditionally considered the original location of the document. While the fragment is written in Latin, it's widely believed it's a translation actually from original Greek. Some scholars have long noted the peculiar form of the fragment, meaning the, the way that it's written. Think about, our, our, think about Romans, Paul's letters. They begin, we don't write letters that way. You don't begin by saying, uh, Paul to the Romans, grace and peace to you, and, and those things. That he, we don't typically talk that way. Well, the way the Muratorian fragment is written looks a lot like a similarity to the prefaces of Marcionite prologues. Remember the bad guy who said, cut out the whole Bible, basically? So the, the way it was written is mirrors how Marcion would write his books and then his fake Marcionite Bible. So what I want to do is I actually want to spend the remainder of our time looking at the actual document itself. So I have most of it actually here in your notes. So we can, we're going to read an ancient document that goes back to at least 190, if not earlier. This is, this is pretty cool. Okay, the beginning of the fragment is missing, hence fragment. And it opens by saying, these are the first lines, at which he was present, and so he placed them in his narrative. The third book of the gospel is that according to Luke. And then after discussing Luke for a while, being a traveling companion of Paul, the fragment continues saying, the fourth of the gospels is that of John, one of the disciples. So now here's what scholars do. Okay, it begins with the word at which he. And then it talks about the third book of the gospel. So all, almost all consensus agree, well, what, what was the part torn off? That book one and book two were Matthew and Mark. Because book three is Luke and then book four is the gospel of John. So after the fragment talks about John... It continues saying this, since the sovereign spirit, or excuse me, since by the sovereign spirit, all things have been declared in all the gospels, and, and here's what this fragment summarizes the gospels to teach, concerning the nativity, it's the incarnation of Jesus, concerning the passion, that's Jesus, all the events surrounding his death, concerning the resurrection, concerning life with his disciples, concerning his twofold coming, the first in loneliness when he was despised, which has taken place, the second glorious and royal power, which is still in the future, what marvel is it then if John so consistently mentions these particular points also in his epistles, and on it goes. So this fragment, think about what it just did. It says that all the gospel accounts are communicating the same gospel, especially John, and since John talks this way in his 
gospel account, we shouldn't be surprised that 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John say the same things. So this fragment is commenting on the books that are in the Bible and some of the content in those books. What's also neat is just that those statements, how it's similarity to, to the Apostles' Creed, specifically with nativity, passion, resurrection, life, and, and on it goes. So shortly after, this fragment speaks of Luke uh, authoring the book of Acts. The fragment continues by listing all of Paul's letters and then John's apocalypse, meaning the book of Revelation. And then it continues. The, there is current also. So when the, he's writing the Muratorian canon, there is current also an epistle to the Laodiceans. Likely a Marcionite text. That's, that statement is my insertion. That's not in the Muratorian canon. When you, when you read works that explain this document, that's the footnote. So I just put it there for you. So there's also current an epistle to the Laodiceans and another to the Alexandrians, both forged in Paul's name to further the heresy of Marcion and several others which cannot be received into the Catholic universal church, for it is not fitting that gall be mixed with honey. So, so now look at what this, the author is doing. He's told us positively of what books are received by the church, what books are scripture, and then now he's negatively saying, yeah, and those other books that you hear, the, the one to Laodiceans that supposedly Paul wrote, and the one to the Alexandrians, those are forgeries. Paul didn't write them. They knew it wasn't written. And so he's writing this down to clarify what the churches already knew. And then he just simply says several others, so we don't have the names to those other forgery books, but he makes it clear that these books cannot be received into the universal church. Why? False teaching. It's not fitting that gall be mixed with honey, the Bible being honey and these bad books being poison. So this fragment then has an apologetic aspect. It wants to shepherd and protect the church. Here's good books to read because it's scripture, and here's forgeries. Don't even bring those into church because we don't want people who might get confused and start thinking that that's Bible also, and it's not. Paraphrase. Then it continues, we receive only the apocalypses of John and Peter. Check this out. Though some of us are not willing that the latter, the apocalypse of Peter, be read in church. So what this is revealing to us is that there was a debate, at least if this is written in Rome, which it most likely was, at least in Rome, we don't know if it was worldwide, relatively speaking, that there was a debate. Some people thought, yeah, this book called the Apocalypse of Peter is scripture, and other churches said, no, it's not. And so the Muratorian fragment, the author is just letting us, letting us know, he's being honest. Some think it's scripture and th some think it's not at this point in writing. So this indicates that there was a debate if the Apocalypse of Peter was to be read in the church or not, and therefore whether or not it was scripture, and it fell out. So it's, you know, speculation at this point, but it could have been a book that was enjoyed, maybe believed somehow came into Rome and they were reading it, but other locations and even people in Rome didn't agree with the author of this. And so he's just letting you know, some of us think it's scripture, some's not. 
prophets. We can come back to that. But Hermas wrote the shepherd very recently in, in our times in the city of Rome while the bishop, while Bishop Pius, his brother, was occupying the episcopal chair of the church of the city of Rome. And therefore, it ought indeed to be read, but it cannot be read publicly to the people in church, either among the prophets, whose number is complete, that's the Old Testament, or among the apostles, the New Testament apostolic teachings, for it is after their time. So think about what's going on here. He just said that there's some books that cannot be read in the church because they're heresy. So we're not going to read the Pearl of Great Price at church, right? The more, one of the Mormon books. So similar to these Marcionite texts, we're not going to read those so that maybe a new believer or an unbeliever or an unsuspecting believer might somehow um, eat those bad books and be poisoned by a false teaching. But this thing called the Shepherd of Hermas was apparently enjoyed, but he's being very clear. You can't read it publicly to the people in the church. And it doesn't fit among Old Testament or New Testament. Why? It's written after their time. This gives us clues that when John died and his books were finished, the New Testament was finished. So that's why we don't have it in our notes, but some of the earliest writings we have are from Clement. And he wrote some letters to some different churches. And they're useful and edifying to read, but the church didn't consider them scripture. Similar to the Shepherd of Hermas. So you can go into my office and, and you can see all the books I have in there. And some of those books I have in there can be read up here. They can be quotes in the message. And some of the books that I have in there cannot. And that's what the Shepherd of Hermas says. Is they said it was like an edifying book that you could read, but you can't read it in church. I just think it's really interesting, these three categories. Scripture category, heretical category, and useful, but read it at home. So, if, yeah, for example, you know, quote Sproul, MacArthur, Piper, or Cole in a sermon, and those would be useful and helpful to us. And then it gets to, draws to a close. But we accept nothing, whatever, of Arsinus and Valentinus. That was a well-known Gnostic teacher. Or Miltiades, who also composed a new book of Psalms from Marcion, together with Basilides, the Asian founder of the Cataphrygians, Montanists. And then that's where the fragment ends. It's, it's, it's broken. So that's, that's the whole fragment. But there is a really, really interesting detail. So we accept nothing whatever of Miltiades. And what did this guy do? He's on the Christian radio. This guy, Miltiades, also composed a new book of Psalms for Marcion. So Marcion sounds Christian, but he's anti-Christian. He's anti-Christ. And this follower of Marcion wrote a hymn book, a song book. Now, so I'm going to start speculating. Why 
would the writer have to write this down? I'm going to suspect that maybe some of the psalms that he wrote sounded good. And in fact, you probably could read it and say, I agree with all that he says here. Not knowing that he uses different definitions. Maybe churches actually heard them being sung or hummed or something like that. Like, well, that's a catchy tune. What is that? Well, it's heresy music. Right? It's kind of like, why don't we sing songs on a Sunday from the Mormon Tabernacle Choir? It's because of this. I think this is so fascinating. It's nothing new under the sun. One way that Marcion, with his church plants and his fake churches, also had a fake hymnal with music that it seems some Christians may have been predisposed or somehow unsuspecting got this book and maybe read it on their own or certainly learned those songs. It's just interesting because we see the same thing happening in our day and age right now that's been going on. You have um, false churches like Bethel and Hillsong and these movements that are producing really, really good sounding music. I think it sounds good, most of it. Amazing voices. And a lot of the songs, I could go, I think I believe all of those things. But then you start finding out about all of the heretical teachings of Bill Johnson from Bethel, which, which these bands produce this music from, and then sing with other people and things along those lines. And so why don't we sing those songs on Sundays? Because, one, when we sing songs on Sundays, your tithes and offerings go to pay those people for their music. I vote let's not pay heretics. Two, we have unbelievers, we have new Christians among us who, who say that's a really good song. They're going to record it, go figure out what it is, download it, listen to it. That's so good. That sounds so awesome. I want to go listen to that teaching, YouTube this guy, and then all the you know, soul-sucking that they do. Right? You go lay on a grave, and then you suck the powers of the dead Christians into your body to be a more powerful Christian in, in Redding, California. Good stuff like that, which is not true. So, but it's, it's, nothing, it's, not, it's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. And so this is an example why um, it's actually not being uptight to talk about what songs we sing. It's actually loving, and it's as old as the Muratorian Fragment. That we, we need to be mindful of what we listen to and don't listen to. So, um, I don't know if you want to call that a rant, but call it what you will. That's, there you go. Uh, the fragment appears to accept the apocryphal wisdom of Solomon, but it's debated by scholars whoops, uh, if, if the wisdom of Solomon is useful scripture for category, or excuse me, in the list, it talks about the Wisdom of Solomon, which is an apocryphal book. But it's debated, is the fragment saying that it's part of the useful but not scripture books, or is it actually saying it's scripture? What we do see is that in those early decades of the church, the vast majority of the New Testament was, hey, that's, a, that's apostolic, done, sealed scripture. A few books, they weren't entirely sure what to do with, and in some locations, they had some of these apocryphal books that they used, but then stopped using later on. Missing from the fragment 
is only First and Second Peter, James, and Hebrews. Just those four books. Everything, all the rest of our New Testament books are affirmed. And since the fragment labors to say, here's some bad books, don't read these. Here's good books, but just read it at home. And here's scripture. And those four aren't mentioned, but they were known. It's widely believed that they would have been on additional pages of, of books that you could read. So, before I take some questions. Truth for today. In addition to the teaching of the Apostles' Creed, the Muratorian fragment reveals the early church was already in large agreement about which New Testament books were considered scripture. They were honest about ones that were debated and clear on books that were helpful but not scripture and confidently named names of forged books, fake Christianity, and false gospel teachers, even when it came to songs to sing. And this fragment especially speaks against Marcion and the Montanists. That's why this whole section is Marcion and the Montanists versus the Muratorian Canon. Another example of theological clarity coming out of theological controversy. Someone says, your Old Testament is bad. And you go, I don't think that's true. I think it's actually good. And you have to begin to wrestle with how you would answer that question. Muratorian Canon helps us. The fragment did not decide which books were biblical. It described the books the church had always received as scripture. Uh, all this is within just a few decades of the Apostle John's death, assuming a late death for John. So any notion, and this is one of the things that circulates, any, any idea that the church was deeply confused about rival gospel accounts, and I have no idea what books are in the New Testament, and it wasn't until the 300s that the church finally said, we're just going to choose these books to, script to be scripture. That's just not true. We, uh, it already told us that some books shouldn't be read with the prophets of the Old Testament or the apostle apostolic teaching of the New. So Marcion's edited Bible and the Montanists' ongoing superior prophecies, overriding and sign scripture, press the need for the church to clarify what books were scripture and those that are not. Theological clarity came out of theological controversy. And I just ask a question to us, what might it look like today for a pastor or for churches to warn against false teaching? What, what about false singing? All right. Let me turn the fire hose off. Questions? Comments, anything about Marcion, Montanus, and the Muratorian fragment. John, would you help me, please? I do have notes for you. Isaac, would you help me, too, please? Yeah, that's a good question. So, so Joey asked what the universal church looked like, population, things along those lines. We don't have adequate numbers, but it's believed that it was exploding like wildfire. 
So we know from the book of Acts that persecution breaks out in Jerusalem. Some stayed and faced the persecution. Some fled, even of the apostles. We know that because of trade routes and things along those lines. Well, actually, I have it written down in the beginning of the notes I'm handing you right now. So hold on a second. Forgot about that. There's some legends, though, I don't have in the notes, like Thomas gets on a boat and goes to India, and it, it, was, it was spreading faster than we realize, and especially east along the Silk Road, uh, and the gospel got to China uh, centuries before Hudson Taylor ever got there. And then what happened is with the rise of Islam, then it basically almost extinguished the church in the east. And then with the rise of various um, East Asian empires also persecuted the Christians. So while we in the West were facing, um, I guess, good favor with the government under Constantine and beyond, in the East, uh, around the 700s with the rise of Islam, they almost all got wiped out. But it was just a massive spread. Yeah, amazing. Yes, Craig. Based on what we just read about, uh, how do we apply that in our thinking towards something like the chosen? Hmm. It's a controversial question. It is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to answer it. <laughs> there would be, oh, okay. You pulled the string. I will say this. A great caution in watching the chosen is to adopt what those men and women look like and how they talk and how they act and what they do as gospel truth. And it's not. And so I, that I would just issue that great caution in, in watching that. Thanks for asking that question. Can I add something? <laughs> You can, you can add, I don't know if, go ahead. Well, <clears throat> you gave us the example of uh, Bethel Church and, and Bill, Bill Johnson. <clears throat> yeah. Um, Mr. Mr. Dallas, he has said some controversial things. So if we watch it and um, pay forward as the process goes, do we support his ministry, and are we supporting his controversial statements? Well, um, so I'm not up to speed on what he's saying, so I, I can't comment on Can that. I but I would say, just, just mm -hmm. I would just say that, yeah. I mean, if if anything, we're giving money to, encouraging people to watch. If it's going to lead astray, dilute the gospel, doubt any of those things, then. We should think long and hard about that. Okay. I'm done. Okay. All right. Let's let's just get some. Let's get a little distance into next week's notes. So we've made a big jump. Judaizers, Gnostics, Apostles' Creed, Marcion, Montanus, Muratorian Canon. 
So let's just take a pause for a moment before we move into the 200s and the next set of, of heretics arise. And I want to give us, as it says here in the notes on page 21, snapshots of early Christian life. There's some just, I, I think, really amazing stuff to see here. So Christianity became, quote-unquote, legal under Constantine in 313 AD at the Edict of Milan. So what was the church doing, to Joey's question, before 313? Not entirely running for our lives, but in some cases running for our lives. I think that we can get these ideas that there was just empire-wide, unceasing, severe persecution, and that's just not the case. Most of the persecution was regional at a governor level or whatever Roman government structure they had. Um, you, had some gov you had some emperors who hated Christians and persecuted them, some who just tolerated them. But for the most part, for those early years, at first, Christianity was simply viewed as some strange offshoot of Judaism. Romans didn't know what to do with them. And so they just sort of gave them the same privileges and rights that Jews did to go to synagogue and gather and meet. As I mentioned earlier, most of the writings we have from that time are defending the faith. They're called apologies, written by apologists, giving an apologetic. And remember, apology does not mean, I'm so sorry. It, it means to give a defense. Um, though today, if you issue an apology, you should say you're sorry and not necessarily defend yourself. But so for now, just understand the old use of the word, it means giving a defense. Here's a quote from one history book. The church's exclusive, intolerant, missionary attitude to other religions marked Christians out and made them very unpopular. To their, to their pagan neighbors, this evangelistic devotion to Christ as the only Savior seemed highly arrogant and dangerously antisocial. To make things worse, Christians refused to worship the emperor. The authorities saw this as a serious political offense. Worshiping the emperor was a sign of loyalty to the empire. To refuse was to be a traitor. The chief test of whether someone accused of being a Christian was a real Christian was for the magistrates to order him to worship a statue of the emperor and say, Kaiser Kurios, Caesar is Lord. That is, Caesar is a divine figure, a god. And a faithful Christian would refuse because for him or her, Christos Kurios. You hear how those sound so similar? Christ is Lord, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. One cannot worship both Caesar and Christ. Until the year 250, there was no persecution of universal, empire-wide extent. Outbreaks of persecution were local, limited to cities or provinces, short-lived. Pagans increasingly blamed and victimized Christians for any local calamity or disaster. In the words of Tertullian, an apologist, when the Tiber floods or the Nile fails to flood, up goes the cry, Christians to the lions. The idea was at was at the idea was that the gods were angry 
because Christians were drawing people away from worshiping them. So pagans blamed all local catastrophes on the church. It became a common saying, no rain because of the Christians. So just think about that, how sayings get lodged into cultures. And this became an empire-wide statement, no rain because of the Christians. Since Christians did not worship the gods, people even regarded them as atheists. Away with the atheists was a popular anti-Christian cry. So here's a letter. This is a letter dated somewhere, look at how early this is, somewhere around 111 to 113 by Pliny the Younger. He was the governor of Bithynia. He wrote to Emperor Trajan, Trajan, I gotta say his name, seeking guidance on Christians. So you can go back and, and read, read this. I'll summarize it. This is the actual letter. He's confused what to do with Christians, so he's been killing them. But then he decided that he would write the emperor to ask him what to do. So I've underlined a few key quotes. What he would do is he would make them declare Caesar as Lord. And this quote says, he says, Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserves to be punished. So he didn't really understand the doctrine. He didn't know what they were about. But he knew they weren't saying Caesar is Lord. And so he executed them. And then down here in number three, he um, talks about some who apostate and, and deny Christ. But here's, the, it says, they asserted, these Christians, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn, sing responsibly, responsibly a hymn to Christ as to a God, and to bind themselves by oath not to do some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not falsify their trust, nor refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. That's the, one of the earliest descriptions outside the New Testament we have of what a church service was like. Accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. That's the description of Christianity. Depraved, excessive superstition. Notice also female slaves who were deaconesses of the church. I therefore postponed the investigation and hastened to consult you, for the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. For many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes, are and will be endangered. For their contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and the farms. That means the gospels, the contagion. And then uh, Trajan says, good job. And then oh, note this too. 
This is, this is uh, Pliny's final statement. It is certainly quite clear that the temples, which had been almost deserted, have begun to be frequented, that the established religious rites long neglected are being resumed, and that from everywhere sacrificial animals are coming, for which until now very few purchasers could be found. Hence it is easy to imagine what a multitude of people can be reformed if any opportunity for repentance is afforded. This, right, this is not Christian talking, a Christian talking. This is this magistrate using persecution, torture, and killing Christians to uh, deconstruct their faith and return back to paganism. But what we discover here is that so many people had become Christians. They stopped sacrificing animals. They stopped going to the temples and all of those things. And so their reformation is uh, de-Christianizing them in the words of Pliny. And then, yeah, Trajan says, keep doing it. Let me just tell you what's in the rest of the notes in this section so you can look at it. If you look at page 23, number 6, this is an apologetic document. It's a fictitious debate between a Christian and a Roman citizen. Um, and these charges are brought against the Christian. It's called the Octavius of Minicius Felix. And this is a modernized summary of a very long book that was written sometime either before 166 or one, right after 198. But if you just look, there's, there's I think there's seven charges. And so this is an example of what the early Christians faced when they went to work, so to speak, when they had their shop, when they went back to their master as a slave. These were the accusations published in the newspaper, so to speak. Cannibalism, page 23. Next page. Uh, incest and orgies. They liked the poor and lower class. Page 25. Christians were self-righteous. Christians were atheists because they only believed in one God, not many gods. Um, they were charged with a new religion, and they lacked patriotism. And so you can read this, and I highlighted some, or underlined some key points in it, but it's just really interesting to think about, here you have, somewhere in those late 100s, this apologetic a defense being given for the faith, and these are all the charges uh, brought against Christians. So with that, I want to go ahead and, and stop. So please keep these notes. Hole punches up here. Bring them next time, please, if you can. And uh, I'm going to pray, and then I'll stay to take any questions that you have of what we talked about so far. Lord, we thank you for access to well-studied and preserved church history. Even these, almost 2,000 years later, able to read actual writings and to know what was taking place what our brothers and sisters in Christ faced because they loved you Jesus because you reached down and you brought them from darkness to light you brought them from death to life and that they would declare that Christ is Lord not Caesar 
and they faced persecution and opposition. They were ostracized, and that made your church strong, and it beautified your bride, Jesus. And Lord, we, we pray that our faith would be strengthened by not only the confidence that we can have in your gospel and in your scriptures, but what it took with our friends in the faith so long ago to preserve it for us. I pray, Lord, that should you tarry, that we would do the same for our grandchildren's children and that we would be found faithful. Lord, we want you to come back tonight, but help us to plan for the next hundred years. So, Lord, we look to you and ask for you to dismiss us with your blessing. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, feel free to go. Feel free to ask some questions. If you have one, raise your hand. Yes. It's on. Okay. Um, so I just had a question um, in regards to, I forgot that guy, his name. Yeah. Yes. One of the Craigs. Yes. Um, so just to, I guess like a follow-up question um, would be, like how do you approach, how do you kindly approach your friend? Um, yeah, like, a couple of friends, I guess, if you have any friends that do listen to music like that and they invite you, um, you know, to like worship to Bethel or Hillsong or any of that, because um, I did have this one friend who he would listen to a couple of sermons by this one, um, this one mega church, this one pastor. Um, and the pastor was basically uh he gave an Easter sermon this year and he was talking about how Jesus is like the only stripper that we serve. And I told him that's borderline blasphemy and he completely disagreed. Um, and then, I don't know, like, I guess, should we be silent then on the issue or I don't know, like how do we ap approach or talk to people like that? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, and a, a tricky part is so here, here's our, like, I'll take a couple step backs. Uh, what we have to do is we have to determine, am I dealing with a disagreement on an issue that's still in the bounds of orthodoxy? Baptize babies, don't baptize babies. Arminianism and Calvinism, just kind of different theological stuff. So am I dealing with something that is a serious doctrine, but it's in the bounds of orthodoxy? Am I dealing with something that is just my conscience on an issue where someone else has freedom. So I have to triage those things and still defend why I think we should baptize believers, still defend why I think Calvinism is an articulation of the gospel, but then also defend um, like a conscience issue. Here's why I've made this decision, but I'm not gonna foist that upon you. So the statement of saying that Jesus is like a stripper is yeah. stupid. Yeah. That's ridiculous. That is blasphemy. Yeah. And um, I don't know who this preacher is, and it may be that he is, says all the right things and just had an unbelievably terrible moment. I doubt that. I doubt that that's coming out of his heart, and so most of his teaching is along those lines. Yeah. So I would want to engage with this person, but how you engage is person-specific. 
Some people can withstand a pretty aggressive rebuke and correction. Other people may be so swept up into false teaching or something along those lines that you need to come alongside with them, arm on the shoulder, and course correct them out of that. And that might take weeks and months and even years or something along those lines. So it's discerning the person and the issue. Um, and, you know, my judgment would be to, to uh, discern the receptivity of their heart. Do they just know me as someone who's always um, ruining their picnic? And so they just assume that I'm being uptight. And so I need to use tact to get in there? Or, or is it, so that's just, it's hard to answer that specifically. But I would go to them and say, that is blasphemous. Yeah. That, that is a sexualized, grotesque representation of Christ um, for which that idle word, he will be judged for saying that. Well, that's his argument to me was that, um, well, you know, like, you're not perfect, um, neither is he. And I was like, but he's supposed to be a, uh, anyway. Um, yeah, no, that's the right answer. Yeah. So, so James, let not many of you be teachers, my brothers, because you'll be held to a stricter judgment. Yeah. So those who are teachers in the church, especially those who are in the office of a pastor or elder, will have stricter judgment. And so that guy's going to be more strictly judged. Second, Jesus talks about that speck plank yeah. right so um that is a plank coming out of that pastor's eye for sure <laughs> it's a log pole so that's a weird smokescreen statement of of well you know we all have sin but jesus didn't die for our sins so that we can keep sinning so we could repent of our sins and and grow so yeah. well it was yeah. it's just in, it's interesting because um he also um argued that you know like sometimes pastors have to go to that extreme to um, get a reach um, so other people could relate. And I was like saying, no, that's, you're, you're pandering. You're, yeah, yeah I, I agree with you. It's, it's nonsense, right? So a pastor doesn't need to go to the extreme. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Yeah. A pastor's job is to faithfully represent Christ from his word. And so that type of communicating of the word is an unfaithful communication. So, so, based on the argument that you have with that friend and saying those things, is that that's somebody who is more willing to hold on to their preference of having that preacher and just kind of smoke screening you, not really willing to listen to anything that you have to say. Um, rather than being concerned about a genuine concern, they're dismissing you. And so that might be something where you have to take a different tact with them. That's a good question. Um, I had a question also regarding songs and singing in particular. I know that here at FCF, we don't listen to Hillsong, all of that Bethel music. However, I was wondering if you could put it into the same light as those Christian books that you were talking about how, sorry, not Christian books, but the books that you were talking about how, you know, some are okay to say in a sermon to quote, others are not, and you have to be wary of your audience to whom you're preaching to. Could that also be put in the same light as the songs, as in, you know, for a new Christian, if we play songs like Hillsong, Bethel Music, they're going to just follow that rabbit trail and end up, you know, looking into Bethel, Hillsong, all of that, falling into a deep hole. For, you know, a Christian who's listening to that music, if they take it with a grain of salt, so to speak, would that be okay? For, like, for me, coming from a musician's standpoint, the music, I can appreciate it, how they have arranged 
you know, the chords in the song, all of that, it's beautiful, but at the same time, you know, not taking what they're saying to heart, you know, looking at it from a perspective using what the Bible actually says. Is that okay? There's a, I'm not prepared to say it's okay. What I'm prepared to say is there's, there's wisdom that's needed. So I'll, I'll say it that way. So, um, I mean, I'm, I'm reading heretical books and listening to heretical stuff to, to know what's out there. Um, and, you know, you, there's, there's different categories. You know, can you listen to Metallica, Led Zeppelin, some of the old good bands, right? Can you, like, listen to something like that? And then there's something different here where this is actually my concern with the, the music piece. This is a wisdom issue. Is we know that Paul tells Timothy that false teachers will creep into households and then take immature people captive. So that's, what I, that's why I kind of hammered the maturity piece, is um, I am not personally aware, and so I, would, I actually would like to be shown this if it's the case, I'm not personally aware of an actual, the lyrics of any Bethel songs that are outright heretical. But that's also because I don't listen to their songs and I haven't researched it. So like one of you can Google it. If you can find some, I actually would like to know so I could have a stronger case. So I would just say that it takes a lot of discernment and guarding of the heart. Because our hearts usually don't change instantly. It's a gateway drug that can move us a certain direction. So that's what I mean by just being very, very careful. But you hear me kind of dancing around where I think there's a bit of a conscience issue involved in here too. So in terms of when the church gathers, we're not going to do that. And, or in a home fellowship. Anything under the name of our church. Um, would I uh, give a CD to somebody and say, like, check out this Bethel song? I, I, I personally wouldn't do that. But, yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to give you some guardrails to work in to make a a decision on your own. Thank you. Yeah. So kind of following that track, if we're like, if the goal is to protect young believers, thinking about like physically young believers, what about things like veggie tales that are not biblically accurate? <laughs> but like, <laughs> well, that's like the most, that's the most prominent of them. But like, obviously, you know, David... <laughs> You know, David didn't didn't steal somebody's rubber ducky. Like, the Jews were not sent to the island of per perpetual tickling in Esther. Like, <laughs> oh, that sounds torturous to me. <laughs> right? And the Ninevites didn't slap each other with fish. Yeah. But that's pretty funny. <laughs> we we need more discernment than we realize, and I we just have to be very very careful. And I think in many ways, uh, Disney is pretty easy because you can watch it and, and spot the outright. They're not trying to be Christian. But then when you get into um, just the whole world of Christian entertainment and all of those things, the, uh, this, the most of what is uh, produced is not first theologically vetted that makes sense some publishers are very careful about the books they publish some movie makers and cartoon makers are very careful most are not 
So I think that's where that knowing trusted sources, things along those lines that you can go to. Uh, but yes, I think everything needs to be investigated and considered. And um, then that also calls for active discipleship. So if, if, if kids are watching VeggieTales at grandma's house or something, then wanting to go and, and then follow up and, and talk about, correct any error with the truth. Good question. Anita. Um, can, can you align that with, with grace? Um, I don't know. I watched VeggieTales when I was a kid. And I'm being sanctified. <laughs> God's grace never ends, right? And he, he is a, I've, I've watched VeggieTales as well. Um, Grace and truth don't compete with each other. So I wouldn't want the other area to kind of go like, well, that's, that's too uptight. You just need to be gracious. So gracious doesn't mean, okay, open the door to false teaching to come in. Um, I think someone should not feel condemned. I'll say that. Like, so let's say you're listening here and then you just, you have Bethel on repeat. So what I don't want you to hear me saying is that you're stupid, you're condemned, how can you be so foolish, blah, blah. It's, there's, there's no condemnation in that sense. It's more of the grace of warning someone to be discerning. And um, when you get into VeggieTale-like things, each, each family will have to make their own decision of, of, of knowing what each kid is able to take and, and how it will influence them and what the teaching is. And so I think... That's where the grace comes in is we have to be careful with creating so many rules that when our rules bleed over where other people have freedom, that's called legalism. And then when, we, when, when my rules must become your rules, which you have freedom, then I'm actually becoming a, a tyrant of freedoms that you have in Christ. And so knowing where freedoms are, it's actually a much bigger gray area than we realize. And that's where Christians get into fights because, well, to me, this is sin. To me, it's not. It's a vehicle of worship. And so that's, that's what Paul talks about in Romans and, and more. I hope there's a little bit of grace in there. I, w I was mostly thinking of, I, I, I wouldn't want anybody to, to walk away from here now with a, with a oh, um, now everybody who ever watches Chosen is, is wrong and I shouldn't have fellowship with them and I shouldn't have fellowship with anybody who ever watched VeggieTales or I shouldn't have fellowship with anybody who ever listen to a Bethel song or like I, I wouldn't want it to come down to my theology is so pure now that I will not try and maybe give that grace of warning to somebody else but also still have fellowship with them because they're yeah. probably saved <laughs> we, yeah we're, we're all in the process of sanctification and we all have freedoms and we all need discernment and we need to help each other be discerning and support each other in our freedoms and both of those are some difficult things. And we can go to someone and say, here's why I've made this decision, you know, something along those lines. I, I have a, a pastor buddy. Well, yeah, I'm not going to go down that road. But yeah, there's, there's uh, the church is supposed to be a culture of grace, not condemnation. And when foolishness, mistakes, sin, lack of discernment are revealed, if someone feels condemned, 
Now, sometimes people can feel condemned when we're telling them the truth in a loving way. So I don't want to, I'm, I'm, I'm threading this needle of not making blanket statements because you can't make a blanket statement on a, gr on a gray area. But what I am saying is that we must be gracious. We must be willing to get feedback. We must help each other be discerning. We must be wise. And so where those all fit together on little different issues is going to take a lot of work. And what we have to do is make sure that we stay unified and loving each of each other, not, not verbally stabbing each other. What else? Any other, any other questions? Marcion, Montanus, Muratorian Fragments. So would you say that when you're talking about speaking tongues and things like that, would that, for example, from the Pentecostal side of things, would that have derived from um, Montanus and, and the, that section of, I don't know how to say it, but that, that belief system of, of speaking tongues and those kinds of things? No, there's, there's actually, it's a great question. So, for example, you can read 1 Corinthians. Mm -hmm. And so in the New Testament era, if you read the book of Acts, there was legitimate speaking in tongues mm -hmm. that were gifts of the Lord. The debate among Christians, a pretty significant divide among us, right. is now once the Bible was finished with the Apostle John, many would argue that the gift of speaking in tongues stopped. Some would argue that it continued. And there's, there's, there's debate there on that. So Montanus had scripture he could point to. Well, look here in Corinthians, see? If I speak with the tongue of angels, I could talk about these things. But he was, he was clearly abusing it, using that to be a functional false prophet. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, so, so that's, why, that's why churches were split. Because some people thought, well, I, I can point to these verses. See, they're still speaking in tongues, and they're giving me these prophecies. See, here's the, here's the verses. Mm -hmm. But if it had ceased at that time, then he was a false teacher. That makes sense. If that makes sense. Do you mind if I elaborate on that? What's that? Yeah, go ahead. Do, do you mind if I ask one more question sure. in regards to that? So in regards to speaking in tongues, so this is something that was brought up recently by a friend of mine who's also a Christian, and we just you know, theologically, we have different ideas, and um, how, how would that, what would be the best way to approach that, that debate in regards to speaking in tongues, and, you know, what you were just talking about with, since the Bible, you know, some people believe now that the Bible's closed, speaking in tongues is no longer a thing, versus discerning whether that's something that's actually happening, coming from God, or just a method of control that could be being used by people who are false prophets. Yeah, Th that's more than I can answer now. I'd love to have a private conversation with you on that to get okay. into some of the details. I'd go back to the notes where I said that, so if someone is gonna claim that there's the miraculous sign gifts of the spirit are still active, mm -hmm. if the manifestation of those gifts does not magnify the gospel of Jesus Christ, where the lost gets saved and the church is built up to, to praise Jesus more, mm -hmm. then I would question if it's the spirit of Christ. Mm. That's kind of a that somewhat neutral way to say that, okay, if the, if, if the gifts have ceased and you're doing that and it's just a sensational show, then uh, we know that's not the spirit of Christ, but we talk more about that. Okay. I will say just on the Montanus thing that 
Um, you know, this, this, is, this is a personal pet peeve of mine. I've, I've said it before. But we live, live in a day and age where the phrase, oh, God told me, and then we say something, that's Montanus. Because you can't argue with someone's feelings or, or emotions. And what, what I have found in my limited experience, um, having been saved in the charismatic camp, moved out of that, still friends there, things along those lines, and not even charismatic, just that that's an that's a unhelpful, at best, phrase that has slipped into Christian vernacular. It's just something that we say, where what we do is we're kind of baptizing our feelings, baptizing our thoughts, and then just saying, it's the Lord. So then if it seems like it's a foolish or unwise or undiscerning or something along those lines or not scriptural, you're suddenly having a fight with Jesus through this person because Jesus told that person that. And so that's... I think it was just very unhelpful. We should, I would suggest that we don't use that, that language. And where I've seen it used often, usually it's nothing. God told me today that I need to be more humble. Praise the Lord. But then when it gets into weird things about making decisions for life and things along those lines, and I've seen it used, I've seen people abused by other people. These two ladies got in a fight and one lady understood herself to be a prophetess and she was having dreams and saying all of these false accusations against this other godly Christian girl and it was just a mess. And you couldn't argue with the prophetess because she thought she was a prophetess and she was not a prophetess. Anyways, any other questions? Yeah, you guys had some. Um, just a quick question. I'm wondering if you will ever get to uh, the various councils and whatever that did kind of create those rules for what books were in the canon and um, what developed into creeds and all that. Just curious. Will we get there? Yes. Lord willing, brother. <laughs> Lord willing. Yeah, the plan, the plan of this class is to cover um, Nicaea, so we've done apostles to do Nicaea, Athanasian, and Chalcedon. Those first four ecumenical creeds. And then, but then after that, in the 400s, you start getting into kind of weird Roman Catholic stuff and counter. Then you get into uh, councils that are not received by the universal church. So those, those are early ones. That's the goal. You can pray we get there. Anything else? Any other questions? Sam? So just a clarification on the um, man on the cross and the purgatory thing, just to understand where everybody was coming from. So when it says that Christ ascended to the grave, what is your stance? He just was in the ground for three days and then he rose, or he actually went to Abraham's bosom? My, my understanding? Yeah. Ooh, I love talking about this. Thanks for asking that question. <laughs> Short answer. Old Testament era, all the dead go to Sheol except for Enoch and except for Elijah. I don't know yeah. how to answer those questions. But exceptions don't create the rule because they got, well, Enoch was not, and then Elijah got chariot of fire up to heaven in a whirlwind. So Old Testament, they all go down to the grave. The cross, Jesus goes into the grave. He goes to the place of comfort, Abraham's bosom. And then when Ephesians 4 says that he led capti captivity captive, when he, ascended, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. I understand they'd be teaching that when Jesus rose, he emptied out 
the place of comfort and rest, and they all went to heaven. So there was no, except for Enoch and Elijah, maybe Moses, there was no one else in heaven until Christ led everybody into heaven. And right now, oh, and I'll show you something, and right now, the intermediate state is now all believers, when they die, all believers go to heaven, which is the intermediate state, until we wait for the return of Christ to establish the new heavens and new earth. Okay, ask your question. And while you're asking your question, everybody open to Matthew. I'm going to show you something crazy. No, I, I agree. That was my understanding. I was just a little confused with, with the, just the grave thing. And if there was people who believed that he didn't actually go down. Because like you mentioned there, you know, when he, um, the one who ascended was also the one who descended to the lower earthly regions. And when he ascended on high, the version I had said, said, says he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. So, yeah. So and I, so I think that captivity, that Jesus, is, he led captivity captive, is that he's taken the captives of Sheol up to heaven. Yeah, because it says he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished so as to be just and the one who justifies. And at that point, he had justified those who had the faith of Abraham. Yeah, and, I, and yes, yes, and yes. And I think that because Jesus uh, ratified the new covenant, that all of those Old Testament believers now became New Testament believers. Right. Because there's the one people of God, and so they're now, now he's leading the church into heaven. Right. So here's the... Um, Crazy text. This is Matthew 27, verse 51. So Jesus has just cried out, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in verse 51, it says, and behold, so he's yielded up his spirit. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split. And then verse 52, the tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So what do you, what do, you do with that? What's interesting is that as Matthew is, makes it clear, it's after his resurrection. So... They stopped, went to Chick-fil-A, then went up to heaven probably is what's going on. But then you, you have this, this element of, well, yeah, it's just really interesting. So that, that's one of the reasons why. Well, why are people raised if they're in heaven, but if they're coming out and raised, it's just it's really interesting. And did, did they have bodies when they were raised, or was it their spirits? Another interesting question. I don't think they had bodies, but I could be wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I currently. <laughs> yes, right. Walking Dead. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. My, my current understanding. I think what most people think is that the only thing that's physical in heaven right now is the body of Christ, because he's still incarnate. If they are risen so their spirits and bodies will come back together and they're physic physically in heaven too i th i guess it's possible but i don't i'm, I'm not sure yes sam could you possibly have like a end time re uh resurrection spanning across time 
for Christ who is timeless at that point? <laughs> I know this is sci-fi. This is far out there. I'm just throwing this out there. <laughs> well, yeah. So the question is, did, like, also, I'll, I'll, I'll see your sci-fi and raise it one. Did <laughs> Daniel, Daniel gets visions of the end times. The apostle John gets vision of the end times. Did they see each other when they had the same vision? <laughs> so I would say no, because it was just a vision of what's going to happen, what hasn't happened. And the resurrection is, is um, punctiliar, meaning that it's going to happen like you can find it on the calendar. There's some mysterious day when we will be ris risen. And so Jesus knows who's going to be raised. Um, and he's timeless, and he knows all things that come to pass, but this is our time right now, and the resurrection has not yet happened in a different dimension or concave wormhole or any of those things. But it's an interesting thought. Yeah. So would you say then that those who rose, if they don't have glorified bodies in heaven, that they continue to live for a while and then passed away again? Like Lazarus lived again and then probably passed away a second time. That I don't know. Uh -uh. So I mean, so verse 52 says bodies. And that's what the text says. That's what Anita said the text says. <laughs> there's nothing, you know, though, like, there's no other, every other, I'll say it this way. What we positively know from the rest of the New Testament is that they're all in heaven. Think about how the Gospel of John ends with the legend that John would not die until Jesus returned. So is John going to live forever? And they're like arguing about that. So John had to write in his Gospel when he writes it decades later, either in the 60s or in the 90s, when he writes it, the legend circulated that he wasn't going to die, so he had to write his letter to let the church know, no, I, I'm going to die. Right. So that's a way of saying there's no indication that these people hung out and died again, but that they went with Christ. Okay, fair enough. Because of Ephesians 4, he led captivity captive. Yeah, yeah. But beyond that, it's really weird speculation. I'm not entirely sure what to do with it. We'll, we'll know when we get there. We sure will. Good question. What else? Anyone, any other questions? Have you have you heard of the homestead um, homesteaders in Texas? Probably not. Is this about UFOs? No, it's about a cult. I think I think it's a cult. I have my brothers. Probably. Into it. I mean, they're called the homesteaders, and they live in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, it's more. Uh, what's that word? Bened Benedictine, where they're like creating a community of Christians. Christian living space and they go they, they use crafting and things like that so it sounds Amish yeah but it's not but I don't know it, it, it you said it I think you said it last time you said that um, no creed but Christ and that's kind of in their their statement of faith we don't we don't hold to any of the creeds or anything like that we just use scripture 
Well, there's a couple options. So one, you have like the David Koresh's Waco and just the different like Christian cult. Oh, it's funny because they're from Waco. So, so Waco. There's, there's, like, <laughs> there's like those kind of things that have gone on, but there's something different. There's, there is a unique post-millennial move afoot right now. What did I just say? Um, there are three main camps of understanding when Jesus will, will return and the relationship of the millennium to that. There's a pre-millennial return of Christ. Jesus will come back before he starts the thousand years. There is, we're in the thousand years right now, all millennial. And then there's a, we're in the thousand years right now, post-millennial. Pre-millennial and all millennial both think that things are gonna go to hell in a handbasket and get worse. We're all gonna die or get, and or get raptured and then Christ will return. Post-millennialism believes that actually, just like our sanctification, which has ups and starts and downs and backwards, things are getting better, and that at some point, um, our task as Christians is to do Matthew 28, but to also establish Christian societies. And so there's a move afoot in Texas, in Phoenix, in Moscow, Idaho, and other places calling Christians to move and to actually establish a political structure that is um, governed by biblical law. So that could also be what it is, potentially. I have a question about that. Is that okay, so I always understood that we were still kind of filling up the cup of wrath, like the Ammonites, like everybody's, like it's going to get worse because... God's measurement has not been met. But I don't know. Oh, Does filling up the afflictions of Christ, like Paul says. In, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so a post-millennial post would say, yeah, of course we are. And that there's going to be periods of persecution, but that ultimately it'll get better and that the Lord will send unique revival and we'll just see a widespread Christianization. Um, so it's not, it's going to only happen by the Lord sending the spirit and sending revival. And then it's going to be kind of like a, sort of like a political takeover. Um, that's a very loose way of saying it. And then at some point, Christ will come back and establish a golden age. There's a whole lot more to it than that, but that's, that's kind of in that camp teaching. Any other questions? Wide-ranging conversation. Going once. Oh, when you leave, uh, if you have to go out to the back, please use the exit right here in these doors and, and um, don't walk through youth group. Lord, I, I pray that um, you would bless us by increasing our love for Jesus, our love for one another, our love for the lost, our love for fellow believers who have different beliefs from us, and Lord, that you would protect us from false teaching. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.